Welcome to Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. This episode is about fire ecology. As you can recall from mainstream news, fires are popping up everywhere. But here's the thing. Fires have been occurring naturally or have been prescribed for thousands of years. The important thing to note is that fires of today are not the fires of yesterday, and neither are the forests we know and love. In this episode, PhD candidate Gabrielle Ayers will bring to you an introduction of fire ecology and forest management while addressing key terms you may have heard or you may be unfamiliar with. Then we will discuss how human behavior and climate change has affected the natural landscape while considering psychological interpretations that led us to where we are today. Then to end this episode, Gabby and I touch upon what's next in terms of how to adapt, what's going to happen to our forests and wildlife, and what will come from forest management. Now please let me introduce Gabrielle Ayers. Gabby is a PhD candidate in the School of Forestry at Northern Arizona University. She grew up in nature-rich South Africa, where her interest in ecology emerged. As an ecologist, she tries to expose herself to as many ecosystems as possible. As a result of this, she has traveled to 18 different countries, including parts of western Droning Maud land in Antarctica for her MSc research on rock lichen interactions. Now, Gabby is carrying out research on forest response to climate change across the Rocky Mountains in the continental U.S. Her interests lie in fire ecology, dendrochronology, which are tree rings, and climate change. In a nutshell, Gabby is an ecological biogeographer with itchy feet, always looking for an adventure and a chance to learn more. Okay, now that you've met Gabby and know what's to come, we're going to jump into our first commercial break. But please hang around because when we return from commercial, Gabby and I will be introducing fire ecology and forage management. Ciao. Hey everyone, this is Sam Stanford, and you are listening to the first segment of Living with Fires, featuring our esteemed guest star, PhD candidate, Gabby Ayers. Welcome to the podcast, Gabby. Yeah, thanks for having me. This first segment, I think we can lay the foundation for the rest of the episode, where Gabby and I will talk about the key concepts and terms behind fire ecology and forest management. So with that being said, would you like to quickly define what fire ecology is? Yeah, sure. So fire ecology is sort of a branch from broader ecology, where it really kind of focuses on the interactions of fire and the environment. And when I say environment, I mean both kind of living and non-living. So, well, biotic and abiotic factors, right? So it's kind of the relationship and interactions between those two. Understood. So pretty much the ecosystem, because that's the living and the non-living. Okay. So diving into things just a little deeper, what are some key terms that jump out to you that people should know? The one that jumps out to me first and foremost is fire regimes, because that gets tossed around in the media from time to time when they're covering a fire event. So if you want to start there. Sure. Yeah. And that's a really good one to start with. So a fire regime is kind of like the pattern of fire over a long period of time. So kind of like the characteristics of fire in an ecosystem over a given space of time that, you know, it's extended. So you're looking at various factors of that fire. So frequency, how often does that fire occur? Intensity, how how hot does that fire burn? Does intensity also go 
hand in hand with the severity of the fires or is that kind of a separate terminology? Yeah, so severity is kind of the impacts it has. So fire severity is, you know, what is this fire doing to this landscape? So it's kind of how much is that fire affecting the landscape? Intensity is more like kind of how hot is it burning, right? And so, you know, to sort of dive into the intensity a bit, you know, if you've got different types of fires, you have a like a surface fire versus a crown or canopy fire. Typical of those, you know, like a crown fire would burn at a high intensity. And that's usually because it's in the canopy, all the leaves are flammable, it's creating this like environment for high intensity fire. Whereas your surface fire, if you think about it, there's like, you're looking more kind of like ground litter and duff, right? So the fire doesn't have as much fuel to burn. And so that fire is burning at a low severity. But yeah, different things. Intensity is how hot is it burning? Severity is what effects are occurring because of that. Now, there's a couple other terms that I think are probably pretty important to relate to the viewers. And it starts with fire tolerance. Do you mind explaining that a little bit? I would say perhaps a better term for tolerance would be more like resistance, so fire resistance. And I think that term can kind of also be thrown around and interchanged a bit, but really you're looking at fire resistance. So there are certain ecosystems and, um, you know, going down to a finer scale species that are entirely adapted for fire. And so usually those type of species or ecosystems have these fire-resistant characteristics, or in the case of a species, fire-resistant traits. And there's various traits, I guess, that are, you know, sort of in favor of fire. And that's really key when it comes to, you know, perhaps probably what we're going to be talking about later in the episodes, but, you know, those traits are really important. And, you know, we should probably talk about a couple just because... There's a term. So like serotony is kind of pine species cones are serotonous. And so that means that like a fire passes through a system, the cone opens up for seeds and it allows for essentially, you know, reproduction from seed. Yeah, I read about this because it's temperature dependent. It's another way that the trees evolved in more of a fire rich environment because of all of the competition yeah. in the more rich landscape with vast density of trees. So other things, you know, like um, other sort of fire resistant traits would be trees that kind of root pretty deep, you know, so when there is a fire occurring, those roots are somewhat protected and can, you know, maintain that species following the fire. It's almost protecting from the fire on the surface. I guess thick bark, that's kind of a big thing. So particularly um, in species like Ponderosa pine here in the west, longleaf pine in the east, their bark is typically thicker. And so that just really protects the cambium, so the inner part of the tree, from getting damaged by these fires. Right. And jumping back just a little bit to more of the species that inhabit any landscapes that's experiencing fire, you have to think about time is a really big factor in this and how things have changed because evolution doesn't take place overnight. And I think that's why it's really hard for a lot of these species to adapt. But I'll just leave it there. I want to address it later, but I just wanted to bring it out because it was in my head. But I doubt that I'm throwing you a curveball here, but I think a lot of people listening don't know the difference between what a forest fire and a wildfire is. Would you mind explaining that real quick before we move on? Sure. So um, I do think that depends on who you ask. 
I would consider forest fires kind of a dated term in the sense that forest fires are, you know, it's kind of a broad categorization of fires because you can have a forest fire that is, you know, either naturally occurring or you can have a forest fire that's kind of put on the landscape. So I think forest fire is totally, totally something to, you can use because, I mean, a fire occurring in a forest, great. You know, it's a forest fire. <laughs> it's happening in a forest ecosystem. I want to say, though, that wildfires are perhaps kind of a development from what's been happening. So mm -hmm. um, wildfires are kind of fires that aren't controlled. So they've started on their own, whether that be human caused or naturally caused by lightning. And of course, that makes it more difficult to manage. And so given these wildfires on the landscape, we're facing a lot more challenges and wow. trying to control those. So yeah, firefighters, they're often going to say to you, oh, you know, we're fighting a wildfire. When you're talking to forest managers, they're probably talking a lot more about like prescribed burns or prescribed fires, right? So forest fires is really just a broad categorization of fires in these ecosystems. So in a forest ecosystem, and then, you know, wildfire is kind of more detailed towards what's kind of unfolding under climate change. And I think it really emphasizes like we're dealing with this new beast. And I think now that we got some key terms under our belt, let's dive into the then and now with fires and forests. So during my research to get ready for this podcast, the pre-colonial and colonial timeframe were tossed around quite a bit. So Gabby, what were forests and fires like pre-colonial era, at least here in the U.S.? We want to just focus on that. Sure. North America, right, is this diverse continent of rich ecosystems that are historically fire adapted. And, you know, you can get in heated topics about this with certain people. Again, from what I know and from conversations I've had with people here and classes they've taken throughout my PhD, prior colonialism, there was frequent fire in these forests. So whether that is tied to kind of natural climate phenomenon or Native American land use, it was definitely, you know, a frequent thing on these landscapes. And I will emphasize that, you know, the indigenous peoples put fire on the landscape as a form of, they considered it medicine. And so fire is medicine to these ecosystems in that you prescribe fire to this land and you're going to get what you need from it. And when I say get what you need from it, a lot of the indigenous peoples relied on fire for their livelihoods, particularly with things like livestock and sort of burning prairie lands to ensure there's like more regrowth. Just in general, there was a lot of things that fire gave these landscapes. And so the Native American tribes nationwide would use fire for specific, it varied where you were and, you know, which parts of America you were in. But for the most part, fire was heavily used. And that was pretty good because what would happen was that you would have these landscapes that created kind of like a patch mix of burn versus non-burn. And that also would control a lot of the naturally occurring fire. So they'd say in kind of like a high mixed conifer ecosystem. So species that typically don't, you know, their fire regime. So what we spoke about earlier, typically don't have frequent fires. So when a fire hits that, that kind of vegetation band, it will usually burn like quite high intensity and it would have high severity. But 
because cultural burns would control that fire from spreading because as that fire starts to spread across the landscape, boom, it hits an area that was controlled, burned by Native Americans. And there you had it, there was a fire break. And so you really had this kind of heterogeneous burning on the landscape and that itself would control a lot of the fire and, you know, and it would create these heterogeneous landscapes that are more resistant to high severity fires. Yeah. So that's one side to think about it. Cultural burning was pretty prominent. And so that itself created these forest ecosystems with certain structures. And so you would have these heterogeneous forests that would have sort of various structures. You know, you had a mix of species heights. It was just kind of real mishmash, right? And which studies are showing again, has sort of in recent decades is probably the best case scenario for these ecosystems, both for fire management, but also biodiversity. And I can only speak really for what I know in the Southwest, a lot of the forests would have, because they were such frequent burning, you would have very much an open canopy forest. So kind of like, I want to say Ponderosa, because I can see the pictures in my head, where there was like scattered ponderosa and then the understory had very little in it. So there wasn't much shrub vegetation. There wasn't much duff or litter. And that was because you had fire passing through these ecosystems, burning at a low severity and low intensity. And so if you just think about it, you know, you have a fire burns up that ground material. Then in, let's say, two, three years from now, another fire passes through. There's not much for that second fire to be burning because it was kind of consumed in the prior fire. So that was how things were maintained sort of pre-colonial times. What about the forest? Like, how did the forest look pre-colonial versus now because I'd like to touch on that first and then go to what happened kind of once settlement happened in the U.S. Yeah so like I want to say there was like these open canopies with very little understory. It was a bit more of a I want to say cleaner looking forest you know kind of less patchy and sparse. Yeah exactly patchy sparse and really kind of an open canopy. I think that's the biggest thing that I've noticed in the images that I've seen. You know, now you've just got dense canopies and you walk through and it's kind of next to each other. So you're looking up and all you're seeing is just foliage from the trees. Whereas back then, I want to say you kind of had, at least here in the Southwest, a lot of sort of scattered ponderosa pine, dug fir, those type of things. Yeah. Okay. So what happened and why did this change the forest to what we see and experience today? And then once we get through that, maybe we can talk a little bit about the evidence behind that. But let's first address what really happened and what brought us to the point of which the canopy is so densely packed. Yeah. So, I mean, forgive me, you know, I am a South African living in the United States, so my history is probably not as up to date as others. But I mean, for starters, right, more people on the landscape means more fire. And so this was something that kind of unfolded over time. But sort of prior to that, like this is me very broadly speaking, nobody really had these thoughts on fire until they started having these big fire events that were damaging. And so I will say some some early developments, right? So my understanding was that at least in the East, you know, like that wet sort of humid climate, there wasn't really much fire happening. And so, you know, and that was where and correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of the Westerners first kind of landed was kind of on the eastern shores of America. Right. In those days, like they weren't really seeing much fire because the climate wasn't really 
suitable for these like fires, right? And then as sort of colonialism sort of started shifting to the West, they started noticing more impacts of fire and fire activity. So I want to say the first form of fire control by Westerners, which I don't believe at that time they were national parks, but I think Yellowstone was the first park set up in the United States and it was kind of managed by the army and they noticed that fire was being pretty damaging, particularly along roads in the park and those type of things. And so that was kind of the first sort of introduction to, okay, let's control this so nothing really happens, right? And I think that was called the Big Burn, and it happened in the early 30s, if I'm not mistaken. So that came a little later. So this was prior to the Big Burn. This was late 1800s. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then, so that was kind of the first, I want to say, maybe exhibit of fire management. So government, if you have it, coming in and starting to take sort of action on fire. Then we start hitting this period in the early 1900s where we had some big burns, right? And they had crews out on these fires. And keeping in mind that back then, you know, in the early 1900s, there wasn't much for firefighters to fight fire with. So it was really just kind of like crews on the ground with, you know, they didn't really have vehicles to access these fires. And so their job at putting out fires was pretty poorly done in that regard. And they also struggled to do that. And given that there was some serious numbers of death, right? And it might well be that, I mean, you'd have to look this up and cross check me, but I want to say that fire that you're referring to killed about 1500 people. You know, back then this was quite significant and people started to panic. And I want to say government really jumped in and I can't recall the details of how government had shifted. I don't, I do think the army was still in control, particularly of like national parks and things. Like back then, it wasn't the National Park Service, it was the army that were running these areas. And then Forest Service, which established, I think, in 1905, came in. And Forest Service officials were the ones who started to like implement fire suppression. Yeah, you specifically said you know, in the late 1800s, it was fire and forest management. And then it turned into because they were having all these deaths trying to fight these fires, they ended up just saying, okay, no more management, it's fire suppression. That way we don't get mass numbers of, you know, people perishing from this. Exactly. People perishing and money, right? Mm -hmm. Like, us money. So people were just like, let's put it out, you know, and then we don't have risk all these kind of effects from it. So that was kind of early 1900s. And I will say that they were ecologists and certain land managers at the time who were kind of like, well, that's weird. It's something that happens. Like we shouldn't really be diving into these sort of hardcore suppression policies. But I think by that point, and just the nature of governance, they were just views at that point. So, you know, science wasn't really implemented back then. It was more just kind of species what you get. Yeah. And there also wasn't peer review at that time either. And then also it didn't help the fact that, and I'll tread lightly when I say this, that they were not really caring about what the indigenous people had to say at that point in time. Yeah. And I don't think they realized, again, I probably also should tread lightly on this topic, but like, <laughs> you know, they're wasting as they're coming in and they're seeing, I don't know, things are changing and you're not really thinking like, 
well, why are the indigenous peoples using fire like they are? And yeah, they didn't question it. Yeah, they just don't question it, right? I guess that. Mm-hmm. And 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 they were people who did. You know, they were people who certainly were like, well, this is natural. This is happening. But sort of moving from there, you know, they had created all these policies that generated this outlook on fires being damaging, right? And I will say, so I think it was in the 40s. And again, I stand to be corrected. Smokey the Bear came in and, you know, you see Smokey nowadays and he's like, put out your campfires and he's totally shifted his focus. But um, back then he came out as somebody to suppress fires. So he came out as kind of this icon for fire suppression. <laughs> and the general public see that. And, and I mean, and you can't blame sort of group mentality they see that and all that really does is kind of enhance that thought like well why are we putting out fires they've got to be bad right and so we really just fostered this idea that fires were bad and i think it was in the 1930s where there was a policy actually implemented to say all wildfires are to be put out by 10 a.m the next day and that stayed in place until the 1970s And it was in the 1970s that people, you know, it it kind of fell out of place when, you know, you had a lot of a lot more kind of researchers and scientists kind of questioning these policies and environmentalists, big names like Aldo Leopold and, you know, just people who really started to come forward and try and fight these policies of suppression. So whilst all this is happening and you're having no fire on the landscape, what is happening is you're getting a buildup of fuel. Let's, for example, take, I live in the biggest Ponderosa pine forest in the world. So I keep going back to Ponderosa because it's what I'm most familiar with. But let's take a Ponderosa pine forest, right? It's fire adapted. It's used to historically low severity, high frequency surface fires. That's what it was used to. And now, you know, come in policies, no fire on the landscape. You're just going to have this buildup of litter and duff and just layers and layers each year passes you know layers of all this fuel on the ground and so i mean that's one effect there's a lot of other sort of cascading effects to this yeah like logging logging was another big thing that took place after world war ii that's totally in deep waters for me i'm not entirely sure about the logging history in the u.s but yes valid point but um there's cascading ecological effects so an ecosystem like ponderosa pine forest are adapted to frequent fire and so like we're not just talking fuel i'm talking about kind of the structure of the forest too like i said they've gone from having this open canopy forest getting frequently burned and that's kind of how that forest was and now you've got the suppression and this buildup of fuel there's no fire so you know regeneration so seeds and sort of sexual reproduction are kind of somewhat inhibited. Yeah, and so there's just like cascading effects sort of like ecologically. There's a lot of feedbacks in these systems that happen and and that suppression essentially like wedged itself right in between all these sort of feedbacks. And that was, I want to say the start, at least from my understanding of kind of these shifts in forest composition and structural change. And with that, comes a different kind of fire regime sometimes or just a different nature of how fire is going to burn in that landscape which can cause shifts right again because like i said these ecosystems are you know a series of feedbacks and so 
that suppression really kind of threw a curveball in. And it was there for pretty much most of the last century. Oh, okay. Let's address maybe the evidence behind this. What are you seeing that tells you that the forests and fires have changed over time? That's a really, really great question, because that is something that no one can argue. Because <laughs> I can <laughs> literally show you what we're looking at that gives us evidence. And I've seen this with folks who've come into our lab and... So we look at tree rings. So there's various ways to collect tree rings. You can get what we really just, we call it a tree cookie. That's kind of just like a slice from the tree trunk. You also look at cores, but in particular, when you're looking at fire, both of those sort of samples give you a lot of information about a lot of things. But with fire in particular, we take either tree cookies or we take segments of a cookie kind of cut out at the base of a tree. And so if you think about tree that has survived a fire because it's still there right so there's a tree that survived a fire that tree is going to document that fire in its tree ring record and how it does that is that fire you know like let's go back sort of two three hundred years ago you know you had fire that would pass through because it was low severity low intensity it really just kind of left some burn some char on the outside of that tree and every year a tree puts on a tree ring. And so over the years that tree's put on a tree ring and it's kind of, you know, it heals over that scar. And so when there's a fire that passes through a landscape, it scars a tree and you can date those scars to the year that that fire happened. So saying that, and I don't know if that's making total sense to you, but once you cut out, you know, a segment of this tree cookie from that tree, you can date back. So, you know, you've cut it let's say 2021, right? So I count back every ring to those years. So we really can identify what year a fire burned and because it's documented in the tree ring record. And so what's interesting is you take it and you, you can do it here. I mean, we have plenty samples here from Arizona and you can see this period where there was a fire happening every couple of years, which is typical, you know, historically that was typical to these ecosystems. So that tree ring record, if you're looking, has a fire scar every couple of years. Then, you know, from about the early 1900s, pretty much, you just don't see any fire scars. There's just absolutely none for that, like kind of last century. Maybe the occasional one for some odd reason or, Maybe it was a tree that was in a stand that was burning, but then got sort of put out. But for the most part, you see prior colonialism, you see this like fire scar, fire scar, fire scar, and then there's nothing. So it's pretty evident. Like you can't, how do you argue with that, right? You're looking at it and you're like, well, clearly there was fire happening frequently in this forest. And then something happened to stop fire from happening in this forest. Like that's across almost every sample that, you know, you pull from these landscapes, you can see it. So that's at least the evidence that we have in terms of evidence. And I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but in terms of like benefits of wildfire, we use that evidence to also look at kind of benefits of fire. And, and we can touch on this later if that comes up, but, you know, we can use these tree core samples and these tree cookie samples to look at the tree's growth response to events like fires and things like that. Yeah. And if you take a step back and look at forests from, you know, say 
now compared to pre-colonial times. I think there's also topographical evidence between that because the trees now are growing less in patches and more in blankets. And then we also see trees covering different elevations and valleys more than they ever have. Like if you take like panoramic views in the 30s and panoramic views today, completely different. It's a carpet compared to that sparse patchwork that you were talking about earlier. I think that's another good piece of evidence. Yeah, it really just talks to how those forests were kind of controlled by fire you know they didn't have that encroachment into wetlands and things like that because typically they were you know like a fire would pass through and again depending on the vegetation and where the fire was you know a high severity fire would wipe out 80 percent of trees but in terms of like sort of your low to intermediate um, intensity fires that would pass through they would usually kind of I mean, think about it, fire is going to burn off some seedlings, it's going to kind of clear up a lot of the younger vegetation, which reduces competition. So what you're talking about, what you start to see a lot more encroachment into areas that we typically haven't seen, that really is just kind of a side effect of not having fire burning things like that back. Well, there you have it. That's the evidence that you need to show that it's actually a change. You got to remember, it's never a simple explanation in ecosystems. There's a lot of confounding factors that cause these things to, to shift. But Right, it's nature. Nature's dynamic. But I think this is one of the main takeaways from this episode. And it may seem counterintuitive to most people sitting outside the fence of fire ecology. But if properly managed, fires are fantastic for the landscape. So do you want to, I know you touched on it just a little bit ago, but if you want to really hit the nail on the head here. Sure. I mean, so I just briefly spoke about competition, right? So I would control a lot of these kind of understory establishment of species, a lot of the understory establishments. So, you know, fire will wipe through and kind of kill off some of those species and that would allow for other species to come in and, you know, maintain kind of that diversity between species. In general, so one thing that we've probably not really spoken too much about, and it's one of the reasons why historically Native Americans also used fire, is fire you know, replenishes the soil, provided it's not burning at a high intensity where it's burning off organic matter, therefore having high severity, but it's essentially charcoal. So you're getting kind of nutrient replenishment into the soil when a fire passes through, which you know, obviously maintain soil quality, which allows for establishment. There's also, you know, a lot of studies, especially in recent decades, are focusing on impacts to wildlife. This whole episode, I'm probably going to keep saying, you know, it was used by the indigenous peoples, and that's because it was used for these reasons, because it's so beneficial. They would often burn like prairie grounds, so that, you know, new shoots would come in, and that would sort of attract, you know, it would kind of be a way of controlling their livestock. So like it would kind of bring them in. So they would burn those to have those prairie lands to get new shoots and have them there kind of in the warmer months. Then in the winter months when they're hunkering down, sort of do the same sort of thing in the forest and get sort of the livestock would shift, you would move into there. And beyond just kind of controlling new growth in the forest, the fire also would, that sort of structural thing, right? You know, you've got, it's not just sort of livestock and sort of elk living in these forests. You've got birds, heterogeneity is a big thing and so again maintaining that like 
fire on the landscape is going to keep that heterogeneity in the canopy, which is more beneficial for bird populations. And so I could probably go on and on. <laughs> fire is, at least historically, things are a bit more complicated now. Fire has kept forest ecosystems in carbon neutral balance, right? You think about a fire burning. Yeah, okay, you're burning up a bunch of this forest and you're losing a lot of carbon. But then in the sort of coming decade, you have this reestablishment of this healthy ecosystem, forest ecosystem, that's bringing carbon back, right? And so it's keeping that carbon neutral balance. And so, you know, there's effects sort of from all angles here. There's advantages for wildfire. But when I'm talking about the benefits of wildfires, talking about fires that aren't harming the landscape because they're not burning at high severity and intensity. Right. Two takeaways I think are really important here. One is that the low intensity fires help the soil or help the organic matter. And that's a huge benefit. And the second one is all about the process of evolution, like we talked about before, because these species are just adapted. They understand natural fire, natural low intensity fire. So whenever you start to have a change to the landscape, you lose different species that have been harboring you know, say like a bird species for the last, I don't know, maybe even 10,000 years. I mean, the, the indigenous peoples have been burning, you know, prescribed burning the landscape since the younger driest, at least. And that was like 11,700 years ago. To me, that is the natural environment. Like that was totally how things, you know, and, and it was in balance. They kept balance, yep. you know, and it's because we are part of nature and Historically, that was how things worked. And, you know, now that we're seeing all these sort of mm -hmm. social difficulties and shifts, that's where things get complicated. Agreed. Well, I think we should stop right here and then head to commercial break so everyone can kind of absorb what they've heard. We'll be right back after this brief message. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water, which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now, and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. C-Bar. Shampoo done right for you and the planet. Hello again. Welcome to the second segment of Living with Fires. This segment, Gabby and I will be talking about human behavior and climate change effects on forests and wildfires. So Gabby, are you ready to inform the people? <laughs> sure. <laughs> to the best of my capabilities. <laughs> okay, so, oh uh, yes, climate change. And one thing I think is important to just briefly explain to the viewers, because I can't recall if I've made this point before or not, is that climate change 
has always and forever will be a thing. But it is the anthropogenic influence or human influence that gives rise to great concern. Really, the Earth has been warming gradually since the Younger Dryas period, which I mentioned earlier is between 11,700 and 12,900 years ago, and has done so in the past as well. Believe it or not, the people who say the Earth naturally has its cycles are completely correct in a simplistic point of view. The cycle is about every 41,000 years and is actually getting smaller and smaller as we go across time. And it's deemed the Milankovitch cycle. But human activity is causing gradual increase to the Milankovitch cycle to become an exponential increase. Usually it's a gradual thing, but now because of the superimposed phenomena, it's becoming more exponential and fasted. So essentially, that is why you hear the emphasis on carbon capture and methane reduction and green energy, et cetera, et cetera, because the climate trend is affecting all facets of life, including wildfires. So this leads me to ask you, Gabby, how is climate change impacting wildfires and the natural landscape? So that is a big question. So um, I will do my best to answer it in sort of the simplest ways possible. Yes, to all of the above, <laughs> you, you know, Climate change is, you know, and, and this is obviously a topic of conversation that could be a whole nother episode on its own, but it is naturally occurring, right? We've had these shifts in climate for centuries. Um, we have the evidence for it. And, and sometimes we fight off the people that say, oh, it's naturally occurring. What are we all worrying about? Like, yes, we know it's naturally occurring. Like you said, though, in recent, you know, centuries, we've noticed this change, especially since that industrial revolution. So... Saying that, I will keep this sort of broad and simple by talking about what drives fire. And so if you think about a fire, and I might be going back to kind of like chemistry and physics here, but you have a fire. To sustain a fire, you need fuel, you need oxygen, and you need ignition, right? And so all these conditions, when they're right, it's when you'll have a fire. And under recent climate change, or rather sort of, let's maybe say anthropogenic climate change, we are having these enhanced impacts of these kind of periods in this sort of climate system, right? So particularly here, something that, and I mean, it's seen globally in various regions of the world, there's these changes are sort of impacting various areas differently. And at least for the Western United States, we're experiencing hotter climate. And with hotter climate, you have more evaporation from the soil and that dries out vegetation. And so you're making this vegetation a lot more flammable. And so that's kind of bringing about these kind of ideal conditions for a fire. You've got high temperatures, you've got dry fuel loads ready to burn. All it takes is an ignition. And that can come from two ends. It can come naturally from storms. So lightning strike is probably what people are most familiar with for being a cause of fire. And so there's also something, right? You know, with anthropogenic climate change, we're seeing these enhanced effects of climate change. And that's something else. We're seeing enhanced storms. So we're getting more lightning, more frequent lightning strikes, which are increasing the probability of a fire ignition. And then there's also sort of social human side to it, where there's people, there's fire, right? You just naturally are increasing chances of fire ignition. 
So whether that be in the forest with some cigarettes or you're lighting your campfire and not putting it out, you know, you've just got more probability for that fire. So quick note, she's absolutely right. And just to add on to the probable causes, you can also ignite a wildfire just by the friction between your tires and the dry foliage. Speaking of the probability aspect, the United States National Park Service interpreted data from 2000 to 2017 and concluded that nearly 85% of wildfires in the U.S. are human-caused. So we are causing more fires, but we can also fix that. First, don't toss your cigarettes. One that is actually littering because there are plastic sheaths in each cigarette. And two, they can cause massive wildfires. Additionally, pay attention to the signs. If you aren't allowed to burn outside, don't do it. There are plenty of sources like your local news that will tell you when you shouldn't be burning outside. And lastly, please control your gender reveal parties. A gender reveal party in 2017 caused $8 million in damage and burned 47,000 acres of land. Trust me, there are more examples. Sometimes it's easier and safer for everyone to just keep things simple. But I digress. Back to the show. Climate change, we're sitting with these ideal conditions to fuel these kind of large fires. And the problem really comes in where, referring to our previous segment, right now we're sitting with forests that are like matchboxes ready to ignite because we have these fuel loads that have not been cleared for the forest floors unless recently, you know, management have been trying to sort of counteract that. But for the most part, a lot of our forests have this century of fuel buildup. And so there's a lot of material on the ground in these forest ecosystems. And with increased chances of fire and climate change, it's looking pretty bad. I will also say that there are other sort of things to this. So for starters, we're having, you know, with rising temperatures, we're seeing earlier snow melt. And so our, well, earlier snow melt essentially means earlier fire season, right? So our fire seasons, which are usually kind of the period of the year where you start to see fire and where fire would typically occur on the landscape are being extended. And so not only are we increasing chances of ignition just by increasing populations and all of these things, we're also extending that period where we can have fire, right? So earlier snowmelt means less moisture again. And so we're just kind of making it worse as we go along. And sort of future projection with it, you know, we are only expecting drier, hotter climate. And so it kind of ties into the theme of this talk. We're going to be living quite literally with fire. It's inevitable. Um, and so it's more about how do we approach this so that it's not detrimental to us and to our biodiversity. I think I'll take it from there because I know you touched upon global temperatures rising. And global temperatures are exponentially increasing and have been since at least the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in terms of anthropogenic. Now, like I said, the Milinkovitch cycle has been occurring since, oh man, I, I don't know the exact time, but we're on the upscale tick of the Milinkovitch cycle. So if you don't mind, I think it would be a good time to maybe explain temperature and heat. Might as well throw it out there because people don't really understand the difference. And also explain that global temperature estimates are kind of scary to people that really know what's going on. So temperature effectively measures the speeds of moving particles in a measurable area. So say if I add energy in the form of convection on a hot plate, 
to the molecules of coffee in a coffee cup. The temperature goes up to, say, 120 degrees Fahrenheit. But actually, the molecules of the coffee are not actively all moving at the same rate in the entire mug. So you may have a reading of 100 degrees at the top of the cup on your first sip, whereas the bottom of the cup is at like 140 degrees since it was closest to the hot plate. You may even have cold and hot spots within the middle of the cup as well, and that's just because of certain parameters like density and what have you. But in essence, the temperature, it's the average energy of the coffee cup. Now, heat, on the other hand, is a different story. Heat is the total energy within the confines of what you're measuring. So take the coffee that we just made on the hot plate and compare it to the ocean. That's a huge difference, right? <laughs> a lot bigger. The coffee cup has a higher temperature than the ocean, but the ocean has more heat than the coffee cup. Well, why is that? And it's because the former is an average and the latter is a summation. So that's the difference between temperature and heat. So now that I properly defined temperature and differentiated it from heat, let's come full circle. So when science says the Earth has warmed by 2 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1 degree Celsius, since 1880, and is projected to increase from 2 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, or 1 to 5 degrees Celsius, by 2100, I'm a bit worried, and here's why. So think back to the coffee cup. The temperature is not the same at every spot within that cup, right? The same thing goes for the Earth, and it could be that the Arctic and the Antarctic regions only gain 2 degrees, but at the same time, given the Earth's tilt, the revolution path position, and the sun's solar flares, the tropics could be 10 to 12 degrees warmer than what averages are telling you. So really, that 10 to 12 degrees has a more profound impact on the ice sheets than you think, and that is because of the process of superimposition. And good thing you came to science class today. <laughs> so there are so there are three aspects, right, that dictate the warming of the earth, you know, in, in a broader sense. Astronomy to simplify things, the earth's albedo and our atmospheric composition. So why astronomy? Well, really it has to do with the sun and its solar flares that toss increased amounts of radiation our way. Typically, they come in the form of ultraviolet, what gives you a sunburn, and visible light, so you can actually see things. But I'll get to that a little bit later. Really, more intense radiation plays into these following effects. So let's address the first effect, and that's the Earth's albedo. So if you're not familiar, the albedo effect is pretty much the proportion of which you have sunray reflection to sunray absorption. And when I, when I say sunray, I mean sun's radiation. And I, yes, this is also a good fun fact. Sunrays don't actually heat the earth. And that's common misconception. The absorption of the sunrays heats the earth. How this works is photons traveling from the sun will interact with the earth's surface in the form of UV or visible light. And if the rays are absorbed, they are emitted at a later time called thermal lag, in the form of infrared or essentially heat due to that interaction. Hence why high noon is the time of the day where you get most of your sun exposure, but you don't get the warmest period until a few hours later, uh, usually around 2 to 4 p.m. 
And this is very important because thermal time lag feels local to us on a two to four hour scale. But when we are talking on the global scale with the Earth, time lag is a different beast because there is essentially way more mass in play. Think of it as being fashionably late to a party just in year time scale. So that's the one path with absorption. But then the rays can also be reflected, as I said before. And here's where the greenhouse gases come into play, or the greenhouse effect. So as sun rays or the radiation move back into the atmosphere after being reflected from the Earth's surface, they interact with the greenhouse gases, or GHGs, and incident the rays and trap the rays into the atmosphere. So the more greenhouse gases you have, the more this occurs. Essentially, this is a scattering effect, and it creates energy, which in terms expels heat, same way that uh, the absorption does. This heat then superimposes on the absorption, and thus we have a hotter climate over time. And that is essentially what we are seeing on a really, really simplified version. And yes, to come completely full circle, albedo varies because of the reflectivity varying on the Earth's surface. So in this matter, you'll get localized pockets of warm and cool air. And these localized areas are at the simplest form, your areas of high probability fires, especially if they haven't been properly managed, as we talked about. And we are seeing this in parts of the Western United States, for just an example. So Gabby, would you like to add to that at all? Yeah, sure. So kind of talking about it really just sparked something in my mind when you brought up these pockets of sort of concentrated areas that are, you know, either hot or cold. One particular natural phenomenon that's pretty important when it comes to fire regimes is the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So El Nino, La Nina. And again, we, we could dive into this, but in a nutshell, you know, we go through these phases where we shift from El Nino to La Nina, and then it kind of goes back and forth. When we shift through these phases, that has effects on certain parts of the globe. And so sometimes it can be a bit counterintuitive. You know, let's talk currently. Currently, we're in a La Nina phase. And what does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, right now, it all happens kind of over the oceans and so it affects different continents differently but right now and at least in western united states la nina is bringing drier than normal conditions that's not necessarily to say that that's what everyone else is feeling it's the complete opposite in australia they're having wetter than normal conditions and so these are also sort of natural phenomena that happen and coupled with that anthropogenic climate change, you can just imagine. So when we're kind of at the peak of these phases, where we're having the most driest conditions we could be having, it's only enhanced that much more, right? So now we're looking at these periods of time where we really are susceptible to extreme wildfires. And so I know we're in La Nina because we've had very little snow in Flagstaff the last little while when typically we've had a lot of snow by now. Quite similarly, I know we're in La Nina because I have friends in Australia who are being just drenched at the moment. You know, so their fire season is kind of at a low, whereas we're sitting at a bit more susceptible. So, yeah, we have these sort of natural phenomena. It really is a lot of feedbacks in the earth. Here in Western US, at least, you know, we have that dry 
pocket climate if you have it. And I mean, that is why the Southwest and United States in particular are really at risk under future conditions, future projections for climate change. And so what's interesting with Enzo is we don't know when it's going to shift. It kind of comes and goes. Right now we're in La Nina and it's pretty evident, which means that we could be facing pretty bad fire conditions, you know, or fires rather, conditions that will promote fire. Wow. Perfect explanation. The only thing I'd probably add to that is that the El Nino and the El Nina is something that is quite temperate. It's very fast happening, right? Whereas climate change takes shape over 10, 20 decades to um, half centuries to centuries. Whereas this stuff is happening on a very timely basis, more like in months or in a year or in a week. But there's just a difference there. But what happens is you get that superimposition effect with El Nino and El Nina and then also climate change. So the wildland urban interface is directly correlated with human induced climate change and human behavior. So it is very influential. But before I hand it over to you, let me briefly define the wildland urban interface or WUI, which is a really fun acronym. <laughs> WUI is talked about a good bit between climate experts, ecologists, forest managers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, urban sprawl is a driving force to WUI because as humans effectively move further and further from the city's inner cores, it pushes more and more people into the wildlands like never before, where houses are then submerged in areas of dense vegetation with little clearance. And when I say clearance, I mean that these houses or human-made structures are effectively surrounding or within areas that haven't been properly managed. They're quite literally in the forest. Yeah. So what does this change in WUI affect? And also, if you would like to add to my quick definition on WUI, please be my guest. <laughs> sure. I mean, it is pretty self-explanatory. It's that interface. It's kind of that interface where people meet these wildland areas. And this has been quite a cool topic. I'll just quickly add that, especially given recent months, if you have it, COVID, right? So I hate to bring it into this podcast because everyone talks about it these days, but I will say like, this has been a pretty good example where societal views and thoughts and feelings really kind of directly affect what's going to happen with forest management. And I say that because with COVID, we've seen this major shift of folks out of cities into these kind of more dispersed rural areas, small towns like Flagstaff, where I am, you know, we literally live in the world's largest ponderosa pine forest and the city's totally in the Coconina forest and we're just growing like you cannot believe. And it's because we're having people leave for various reasons, you know, one being they don't want to be in cities where they're at risk of picking up a virus like COVID. Two, they're just like, well, you know, work's changed. I now can work remotely. Why would I live in a city when I could live in a beautiful place in the mountains in a forest? And I can put up my curtain in the morning and look straight out at some elk between some trees. You know, like I get it. It's beautiful. Like we all want that. So yeah, I will just say Wooey's become kind of a cool thing to be thinking about amidst COVID. But yeah, so I guess the risk comes, right? And this is really kind of what we want to be talking about. 
I think I said it earlier too, where there's people, there's fire. We just have this increased probability. And I think too, there's a lot of lack of education regarding risks. Like I've been fortunate to visit various forests and carry out some field work and there's always houses. And I like for the life of me, I'm like, if a fire was to hit this forest, they would be goners. Like that house would be goners because people aren't aware. They just don't understand. Right. But the issue comes where, you know, we've got this increased chance of fire, but really in today's times, we're a selfish species, um, to put it bluntly, and we're our own priority. And I think at least when you start hitting up, and this is probably a very opinionated view, when you start hitting up into the government levels, management, forest management's primary focus is on these wooey areas because they can't face the repercussions of dealing with a nightmare, right? That would come at them if a fire hit these homes or vacation homes or whatever it be, whether it's a ranch or, you know, you just start, whatever it is, they're putting themselves at trouble by not trying to mitigate sort of the effects of fire on these wooey areas. So it's a complicated thing. And I will say there are various measures that people can take into consideration to protect. And I think that's sort of something that's emerging is educating what you can do as somebody living in wooey areas, what can you do to prevent wildfire spreading and, for example, clearing litter and duff out of your gutters, having kind of fire-resistant vegetation bordering your property, making sure, you know, you're using materials that aren't as flammable. There's various things and there's lots of resources out there to look at for you to help try and contribute to spreading wildfire by being somebody who lives in wooey. I think that's a perfect way to end this segment. So thanks, Gabby. When we come back from the commercial, we will finish the episode by talking about the path moving forward. So that's a good segue. So stay tuned. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. Greetings, carbon-based life forms. This is the last segment of Living with Fires. Gabby and I hope you are enjoying the episode so far and learning lots. So this last segment, we thought it would be important to touch upon the road ahead of us. So I think first and foremost, we should probably talk about how to adapt to the fires of today and the future, because we know now that they aren't what they used to be. So Gabby, how can we as a society adapt? Yeah. So again, big question, Sam. I will say, summarizing the previous segment, under future projections, we're expecting a lot more fire on the landscape with every, I read a paper recently where it's like for every degree Celsius increase in temperature, we're expecting about 600% increase in wildfire activity. So there you have it. We're pretty much facing a future of fire. 
And like you said, it's kind of inevitable. And so what can we do to live with it? I think there's various layers to this. The best we have to sort of show for these future conditions are model projections. And no model is right, but they're useful tools and they can give us an outlook into what we can expect. And that's maybe plugging a bit away at my research too. I will say, use these tools, you know, get an idea of what things will look like so that you know what beast you're facing. Beyond that, what can we do, right? And so this is a complicated matter in the sense that there's various aspects. The first being social views, right? How do we as a society view what's coming? What do we do basically? And how do we adapt? Then there's the responsibility from management to deal with that. So as forest managers, what do we do to not face the wrath of these sort of high intensity fires coming our way? I will also say the key thing here, we've not spoken about it at all. Well, I guess we touched on it briefly in the first segment, but we didn't really categorize it. Forests provide us what we call ecosystem services. And these ecosystem services are often not what you think they are. They vary and they're categorized accordingly, but to name a few, forests filter water. They control climate, not entirely on their own, but they're definitely influences in climate. They provide us livelihoods. Recreation is an ecosystem service. And so really what we want to do is manage these forests and keep our forest resilient to these changes in fire and climate so that we can keep sustaining our ecosystem service provision. Another big one is flood prevention as well. You said filtration, but flood prevention is huge because whenever you see these, these mega fires, they'll wipe an entire landscape and then a rain ensues and there's just nothing to hold it back. It's like a mudslide. It's not good. And there's so many classic examples to that if you look it up. So yeah, there's really loads of ecosystem services that these forests provide us. Without forests, we're definitely going to struggle. So let's address the first issue, and that's kind of social views, right? And education is key here. And I know it's easy to instill education at these sort of, I, get, I think you call it elementary school here. We call it primary school, elementary through high school. It's easy enough to start including things like that into the syllabus. And I myself am pretty involved with that. I give presentations to schools about fire and, and all sorts of things. And I'm trying my best to play my part in that role. And it's easy enough to do it in schools, but it's educating the masses of people that kind of lived maybe within the last century, right? So your older generations and even some of your generations maybe a little bit older than you and I, Sam, but like educating people that wildfire isn't what they used to think it is, right? So shifting that focus from the fire suppression years where people were brought into this sort of century of, oh, fire is bad, suppress it, back to, okay, you know, I see a fire, it's happening, it's controlled and we're good. It's going to be beneficial for us. Like, this is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Yes, of course, you know, I'll eat my words when it's these kind of crazy fires, high intensity, high severity. Those aren't good ones, right? They're not going away either. No, they're not. And so I'm not trying mm -hmm. to say like, if it's a wildfire that is out of control, yes, bad. But then that should be a signal that you need to do something about it. And that will sort of fall into more the forest management side when I address that. But at least on the social sort of side of things, 
really educate yourselves, you know, educate like yourself towards what forest managers are doing and understand why they're doing it. Often, you know, you'll walk through forests and you'll see sort of things that are maybe indicative of the activity going on there with forest managers and don't be like, you know, why they're marking these trees with paint or there's all these sort of things that happen and people don't really look into it further. It's like, oh, well, I saw some trees painted today. Why are they doing that? So really just putting the onus on yourself to learn more about these things and be open to shifting views and opinions. You know, I know like there is still very much a large community that are against putting fire on the landscape and particularly other sort of prescribed treatments is what they're called from forest managers. There's a lot of backlash and I can understand that it looks bad on the outside, but if you took the time to really, you know, dive in and learn about what was going on, you'd realize that it's actually for the benefit of you and your community. So that kind of dives into sort of the forest management side, the United States Forest Service. I'll just just run with that. There's a lot of technical sort of limitations, money being one of them that prevent them from doing things. And so I know there has been studies recently to try and kind of prioritize how to manage forests. But in particular, I will sort of touch on some of these treatments that people often see but don't know about and really just kind of try and advocate for them and know that what's happening is good. And so one of the things that forest managers are doing are prescribed burns. And so that really is just putting a lower intensity fire back on the landscape like it traditionally used to occur and kind of burning up that material that's you know lying and just trying to get some control on the fuel loads that exist in these systems so that should a fire burn should a wildfire start some lightning hits or you have a campfire that's not been put out those sort of areas of treatment are going to be less flammable so you're reducing that intensity and probability of burning then on the other end, they also have treatments that are called silvicultural treatments. That's really just kind of by the forest silviculturist. And that person really is just responsible for, in most cases, sort of production, but they can also, you know, help for restoration and things like that. So one particular treatment that usually gets a lot of flack is what they call clear cut. And really, that is what it sounds. They go in and they just cut down every tree. And you're walking through a forest and you come through a patch that's just clear cut. Yeah, I get it. Doesn't look good. You're going to be like, why are they cutting my forest down? You know, it doesn't look good. But when you start looking into the details of it, perhaps they're clear cutting a mosaic across the landscape. So they're creating kind of like fire breaks or, you know, there's reasons for these things. So clear cut. There's also... The most common one, at least around town for us, they call it forest thinning. And that really is you're thinning the forest. So they're going and they're cutting select trees. You know, early I spoke about painted trees. Often they'll mark trees, you know, to be cut or to remain. Those type of things, it can get confusing when you, depending on the person doing, you know, doing the treatment, they'll mark the tree accordingly. But they'll go in and they'll cut some of the trees. And, and really the point of that is, again, to reduce like, that dense forest that would, you know, also sort of light up, but it also improves all the other side of things. So it reduces competition. So it allows trees that are typically growing, we call them dog hair thickets. So it's really kind of dense forests that are 
usually, you know, filled with decent aged trees, but they're just not as large as other trees because the competition's been so high for so long. They've kind of been suppressed to, to growing. So there's a lot of silviculture as a different kind of realm for production, but some of these treatments can also kind of go hand in hand with fire management. So I think the key thing is with forest management is they're trying to restore forests back to what they used to be. You know, we spoke earlier, and maybe this is kind of a good full circle um, finishing. We spoke earlier about these forests that were kind of open canopied with a lot less on the ground, a lot less sort of understory. Right now we're sitting with forests that are dog hair thickets or, you know, really dense with like complete full canopies and lots of understory with lots of fuel. And so what can we do to take what we've got now and put it back to what it was? And so treatments like clear cuts or forest thinning or prescribed burns are going to help towards that direction. Um, and, and there is the argument like, well, you know, under climate change, should we be restoring to what it was? Because is that going to sort of sustain our, you know, our ecosystem services into the future? Because back then the climate was nothing like what it is now. So is it worthwhile restoring back to what it was? Or should we rather just kind of think about what should we do to make it more kind of resilient under future conditions. And that's where I say, you know, we've got a lot more access to things like, well, technology and things like models that we can use as tools. Oh, you know what? And that's a good point because a lot of people are probably thinking right now that you're cutting trees away, but don't we need that for carbon sequestering? Not exactly, right? Because there's a net positive to this outcome right? You're preventing these mega fires from releasing all the carbon content. You said before that if you have a slow burning, low intensity fire, you're having the carbon content stay on the ground. Whereas if you have high intensity burning, it's cooking up all that organic material, throwing it into the atmosphere. So it's a net positive effect. It's forest management that's going to help pretty much the overall aspect to it. And another thing to also talk about is that there's less species loss. And then also the fact that I know this sounds controversial, but it's exceptionally true, is that most of our oxygen comes from phytoplankton in the oceans. It does not come from the forests. So honestly, it's an overall a net positive. If you want to make the conversation with me or make the argument about carbon sequestering, let's talk about that in an ocean episode. But, but for this, this is a net positive approach. Yeah, so we make it like a really nasty fire is going to come in, it's going to burn up all the material on the landscape, it's also going to destroy the soils. And so you're not going to have reestablishment of anything, or you're going to have reestablishment of species that are adapted to those conditions, which they're not like carbon rich species, if you call it so. Oh, solid plug. If you want to understand why the organic material is so important that we can't destroy with these mega fires, go back to our mycology episode, because essentially what you're doing is killing the wood wide web, so to speak, with these mega fires. And it's hard to regenerate after that. Right. Really? Yes. Burning. And that is a big argument. And there's been a lot of research papers put out on this. Yes, that immediately you're going to have major carbon loss. You're going to cut these forests. You're going to burn these forests. Major carbon loss. But that's a lot better than when you look further down the line. Remember, we're trying to sustain our ecosystem services. We're not trying to like think of the now. We're trying to think of the to come. And so by cutting and sort of treating the forest right now, we're ensuring that the forest is going to be there in the next century. But if we don't do anything and we just let things carry on on the trajectory that they're on, we're going to lose it all, right? We're not going to have anything come back. And so... 
I think it is a difficult thing for people sometimes to really understand that. And it can be somewhat like... It's counterintuitive. And again, that goes back to the education. And I guess that opens up a can of worms where, you know, there is a responsibility to kind of relay it into the public and sort of particularly forest managers. You know, we're already struggling as scientists to find that medium where our science is being adopted into the management. Mm -hmm. And that's fair dues and that's happening. You know, forest managers are implementing a lot of these sort of novel techniques and approaches, but you can't just ignore the public. Like that's the biggest side of it. And so you can get a lot of backlash from the public. And so really it's kind of, you need the system where everybody knows what's going on and there's this great transparency of, of things. And yeah, just taking it upon yourself to know what's going on, I think is key. Well, approaching science education, the resources are there. It's all based on the curiosity of the human being. The great thing is, as long as you do it correctly, you have to understand, you know, like we talked about in the previous episode, you have to check your sources and understand what's information and misinformation. There are beautiful sources that got me ready for this podcast to be able to have an intelligent conversation with Gabby. So do your deep dive. If you're interested, look it up. It goes both ways, really. I mean, the information's there, but you have to be curious. So well, I think that since we touched on the forests, we should also discuss the future of organisms that inhabit the landscapes affected by wildfire. What is the outlook for these organisms in a broad approach? Yes, organisms, I guess I'm going to, again, address maybe two sides to this. You've got vegetation and then you've got wildlife, at least in this ecosystem. So I am only in the midst of projections with my model and so I can't really speak to what we've done but I can speak to the literature that I have read you know some trending kind of topics at the moment and and evidence for um, at least on the vegetation front we're expecting complete shifts in vegetation right so we're going to probably start seeing major loss of high elevation species the warmer climate because those species are adapted for colder high elevation climate and as start getting warmer they're just going to start disappearing right so we might see some loss of some really kind of critical species and then we also might see encroachment so we might see you know on the, at least on the lower altitudes a lot more kind of shrub conversion so you have these low elevation forests that are probably going to start converting to savanna shrubland and that's again you know totally down to increased temperatures and lack of moisture and especially when you know a fire passes through that fire could totally be a catalyst for something like this where you have a change in composition you go from having a forest to having shrubland and that's because a forest can't reestablish in those climatic conditions following an event like a fire one other thing also is that you have to look out for disease and insect outbreaks. We're probably going to expect to see a lot more insect outbreak. You know, all these things, all these processes that happen have feedbacks and cascading effects. And usually with insect outbreaks, you know, they're destroying trees. Those trees are now sitting dry stumps of wood for burning. So again, more fuel for possible fire, right? you know, we're likely to experience some more insect outbreaks. There's also something I just want to jump back to real quick because I took a deep dive on listening to the public broadcasting system whenever they talk about genetics. And I know one thing that is extremely crucial for a lot of species across the board, and we actually highlighted this 
in our episode six when we talked about ditching plastics and the increasing global temperature. Ultimately, as temperature increases, there's a lot of species out there that end up having sex changes based off of temperature effects. For turtles, more than likely you're going to get females whenever you are exposed to a higher temperature. And that's real. Go check it out if you don't believe me. But so temperature affects the way that genetics takes place. So in essence, if the temperatures continue to increase, not only are we worried about, you know, the fire exposure, et cetera, et cetera, or these organisms that can't survive in warmer temperatures, but we're also talking about the ability to birth the next generation. So it's another superimposed effect. So you have to look at genetics as well. Yeah, these changes are happening so quickly as well, though, that there's certain species that are capable of adapting and there are others that aren't. And there seems to be kind of like this mismatch of things happening. And so at least I can touch on somewhat related with the insects and climate change. You know, insects have these life cycles, these life history traits that kind of ensure this like life cycle. And it varies according to insect species. Some might be like a six month or some might be like an eight to 12 month, right? But these life cycles historically, if you have it, would happen kind of at the right time of year when it needed to happen. And now with these changes in climate, these life cycles are shifting and it's kind of creating this imbalance of when they're kind of, when these insects are essentially developing and kind of impacting the forest. And usually it's at a time of year now that, you know, it's having these sort of, again, cascading effects on trees, which aren't used to having the insect hit them that early or that late or whatever it be, right? So because their life cycles are short, they have more chance of like kind of evolving and adapting, whereas trees, which have long lifespans. So, you know, that's kind of some impacts on the vegetation. And I will say that directly related is sort of wildlife. You know, the vegetation essentially is what's determining the wildlife. The flora and the fauna, they have to feed off each other. Right. So loss of high elevation species, yeah, that's going to have an impact on, you know, some of these high elevation wildlife species. There's like a, a hare in Colorado in the higher peaks. But like that particular species only lives in high elevation, like snow heavy habitat. And that's going to be gone. And already, you know, that species is endangered because of what's happening. So you're going to lose, you know, these key ecosystem species, right? They're called keystone species. And so these are like particular species that are like play a crucial role in the ecosystem. And, you know, they're usually the first to suffer the effects of things like this. So, you know, lots of species, but like I was saying earlier, you know, vegetation is really what determines the food and habitat, you know, and the shelter. And so when you start losing a forest, there's a lot of animals that use the forest for shelter, especially when they're giving birth, you know, like a lot of elk tend to use like forests as shelter for bringing up their, their little ones, their youths. So, yeah, I guess it just has cascading effects again. You know, I keep saying that, but that really is the issue here. And that is the nature of ecology. There's these like interrelationships that just kind of all affect one another. One particular species of concern here in the Southwest is the Mexican spotted owl. And that's directly tied to fire. So fire has always been kind of key for the species and its habitat. And without fire, you know, it obviously struggled. And then more recently with these high intensity fires, we're losing a lot of the birds, you know, we, we're losing them and we're losing a lot of their nesting sites. 
because of these high severity fires that are happening, high intensity, high severity fires that are just wiping out their homes. Yeah, expect loss of species. You know, it's a bit of a depressing future, but you know, I always say, and also when I'm speaking at, you know, at elementary schools and things, I always say to people, truthfully, I don't think we can stop what's happening, but we can sure as heck slow it down and we can try our best to create more resilience in our ecosystems to account for these changes. Agreed. My takeaway from this is if you think that you can't do anything, that's absolutely incorrect. There's two things that I think you can do. One, talk about it. Yeah. That's very important because as you talk about it, it's a trickle effect. We'll say it it trickles through society and then it gets to the people that end up making policy. Number two is expose the next generation. We talked about education. Take your kids, take them to the park, talk to the rangers, talk to people who know what they're talking about and get these kids excited about forests, excited about wildlife. It's so important. Whether they grow up and be an art major or not, it doesn't matter. What really matters is they're a well-rounded human being and understand whenever somebody talks about a fire. You know, they don't go, oh my gosh, you're scary. They go, well, why is that happening? Spike people's curiosity. Don't hinder it. Expose them to everything. And I think hit them where it hurts. You know, I talk about these ecosystem services. I'm telling you, like, these are at risk for a lot of people. So... I don't think people realize how many benefits the forest provides people. To them, you look up and it's a forest on, you know, some slopes and you're like, cool, it's a forest on some slopes. It's a lot more to it than that. So you can say, well, you know, they'd say in the next century, you might not have these things. It it might kind of give them that push to start believing and working with people to make it better. I agree. I'll plug one thing before we go here. And if you want to follow up on what Gabby was just saying, you want to learn about the benefits, specifically on trees. If you want to learn like all the different ways that the trees benefit us, benefit the ecosystem, go to our blog. It's on our Ecolight page. It's named Plant a Tree. Cool. I'll do that. I recently started an Instagram page where I'm really focusing on trying to just do science communication and share a lot of what I'm up to and the forest and fire information in a way that's a lot more kind of digestible to folks than if they had to pull out an academic paper. So yeah, feel free to give me a follow. Yeah, I'll make sure to shout that out. And then also um, I'll be sharing it on our Instagram page. So, well, thank you, Gabby. This was great. It was a lot of wonderful, insightful conversation. I hope that it really benefits the people listening and watching. Yeah, thanks. Really, thanks for having me. I'm always open to talking about this. And the reason I said yes to meeting with you is to just play a role in trying to get all this information out. And I will say, you know, I can't stand to be corrected on certain things. And I'm sure there's folks that disagree with some of my opinions, but at least we're talking about it. Agreed. Have that conversation. All right. Bye, everybody. Cheers. That is all for this episode of Woke Talk Podcast. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest star, Gabby, for sharing her wealth of knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team here at Woke Talk Podcast for their collective efforts to make this show happen. To learn more, go to skypeascientist.com and ask a scientist about fire ecology following this episode. But don't limit yourself to that. Be curious. Ask, why is the sky blue? How can we revolve around the sun? How does devolution work? The list goes on and on. Skype a Scientist is a fantastic way to have a one-on-one interaction and make learning more interesting. 
for any of you lovely listeners out there, check out the Philanthropic Educational Organization. They have an international chapter that focuses on women reaching the stars in their career paths. So if you are interested in becoming involved, donating to their cause, or applying to their organization, head to www.peointernational.org. Lastly, head to our website, woketalkpodcast.com, and connect with Gabby. Or if you want, you can search for her page on Instagram at Find Me in the Forest. If you're feeling generous and love what you hear, you can support our cause to make the world a more STEM-informed place by just heading to our support page on our website. We appreciate you for your listenership, feedback, and curiosity. Thank you all for listening to Woke Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Stanford, and as always, stay woke. Woke Talk Podcast would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Sound Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertisement background rhythm.